Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A true story that reads like fiction. A murder and an attempted murder. A fugitive on the run. New identities. A mysterious twin. And an ending that surprised even seasoned investigators. This is Method and Madness, Episode 11, Quiet Predator Marie Hilly. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Mothers have been known to represent strength, comfort, patience. The woman that will serve you jello on the couch when you're homesick watching The Price is Right. The woman that would give her life for her children. But this story isn't about that mom. Let's dive in. Audrey Marie Frazier, known as Marie, was born on June 4, 1933, in Blue Mountain, Alabama, in the northern suburbs of Anniston, an industrial town that became known for its output of iron used by the Confederacy during the Civil War. Marie's parents, Huey and Lucille, had suffered a miscarriage a few years before Marie's birth and were ecstatic with their baby girl, who came at a time when Americans were struggling with the Great Depression. Lucille and Huey both worked full-time, long hours at the local textile mills, and Marie, an only child, was mostly raised by her two aunts. When her parents were home to make up for their absence, they spoiled their daughter, showered her with gifts and new clothes, while many children were wearing hand-me-downs. Marie grew accustomed to never being told no, always well-dressed from a child and into adulthood, and was voted prettiest girl in seventh grade. In high school, she met and dated fellow student Frank Alfred Hilly, who was born July 17, 1929, in Holt, Alabama. After graduation, Frank enlisted in the Navy and was sent to Guam. While on leave in May of 1951, the pair got married. They lived in California briefly before settling back down in Anniston, Alabama. Once Frank was discharged from the Navy, he went on to do work as a shipping clerk at Standard Foundry, and Marie found work as a secretary seeking out high-profile, wealthy employers who would give her the key into a high society. Marie, an attractive brunette, was known about town for having nice southern manners, a sweet drawl, and a put-together appearance. On November 11, 1952, Frank and Marie had their first child, a son, Michael. On January 14, 1960, they had their second child, a daughter, Carol. Throughout their marriage, Marie's top priority was living a lavish lifestyle, giving the outward appearance of wealth, and she insisted on buying a home in one of the upscale neighborhoods in Anniston, even though it was slightly above the family's means to do so. Her money habits were a real problem. She had been spending Frank's paycheck while he was in the Navy rather than putting it into savings like he had asked, was spending far more than she was making as a secretary, and, through her frequent shopping sprees, buying high-priced clothes and furniture, she was putting the married couple further and further into debt. Due to Frank's popularity in town, he was a well-liked, respected man in the community, Marie was extended credit anywhere she inquired just by being married to him, so the bills were racking up without the cash to back it up, 
And in an effort to keep her numerous bills a secret from her husband, she began having them mailed to a P.O. box in town. Before long, the rumors were swirling, people talking about how Marie was getting her credit, and it made its way back to Frank. Still, he found it hard to get it under control. Marie had a way of getting what she wanted, and Frank ultimately wanted to make her happy. Aside from Marie's secretive and excessive spending, there was other turmoil in her and Frank's marriage. Family members like Frank's sister, Frida, suspected that Marie was having affairs, as she was seen with other men out and about town. Marie would also present letters to Frank, claiming that they were from admirers, but would rip them up before he could read them, causing him heartbreak that she'd later say she did just to make him jealous. Their marriage had pretty much fallen apart by 1972, when their son Michael had graduated high school and moved to Florida to attend seminary college. And Marie's relationship with her daughter Carol wasn't exactly thriving either. Marie, who counted her blessings on her closet full of dresses and was referred to as proper and always well-dressed by people who knew her, resented the fact that Carol rejected the notion of appearances being the most important thing. She was more of a tomboy. Marie spent much of her time badgering Carol to dress better, fix her hair, and she refused to accept her daughter as who she was. And Carol had a tough time with what she referred to as her mother's constant lies. She'd lie about anything from small white lies to big things. All of this would cause arguments between the two as Carol began realizing she could never believe a word her mother said. In the fall of 1974, Frank began to get sick and came home from work early one day with flu-like symptoms, only to find Marie in bed with Walter Clinton, who she worked for. There was a confrontation, but the incident was overshadowed by Frank's illness as he continued to get sicker and sicker after that day. Initially, he just dealt with his symptoms and didn't see a doctor, assuming he'd eat, eaten something bad or possibly been exposed to a chemical at work, but he never recovered. By May 1975, Frank's illness was getting so serious that he finally sought medical help. He was subsequently admitted to a hospital and diagnosed with infectious hepatitis. He died on May 25, 1975, at the age of 45. An autopsy was conducted with Marie's permission, and it was determined he died of infectious hepatitis. After Frank's death, Marie received a life insurance payout of $31,140, the equivalent of which would be about $151,000 in 2021. She blew through the cash quickly, buying new furniture, clothes, and a car. Over the next four years, Marie would report a number of incidents to police that she and her daughter were being harassed by prank phone calls, that her car was stolen, it was later found abandoned and in flames, a fire in her residence, sexual harassment from a former coworker. The list went on, and anytime Marie could file a claim with insurance or get some form of payout from an incident, she would try. It became so incredibly common for Marie to contact the police that they began tapping her phone to investigate into the harassing calls, and, well, they never found any evidence that it was actually occurring. 
Eventually, the police grew tired of Marie's games and stopped returning her calls. In July 1978, Marie took out a $25,000 life insurance policy on her daughter Carol, the equivalent of which would be about $101,000 in 2021, and she was the sole beneficiary. In April of 1979, Carol, now 19 years old, began getting mysteriously ill, complaining of severe nausea. After several visits to the ER that August, she began receiving injections from her mother, who said it was medicine to help with the nausea. Her symptoms persisted and got worse until she was admitted to Anniston Hospital on August 22nd. Medical staff there were unable to diagnose the illness, and Carol was sent to Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Marie continued to give Carol the medical injections, even while hospitalized, but warned Carol not to tell anyone about them as they had been secretly provided by a nurse who could lose her job if anyone found out. By September 18th, Carol's condition was worse than when she was first admitted to the hospital, and doctors said malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies might be the cause. Still with no official diagnosis, the next day Carol was admitted to the University of Alabama Hospital with numb hands and feet, nerve palsy, had lost deep tendon reflexes, and it was discovered that her fingernails and toenails had Aldridge Meese lines, which are white bands on the nail plate. Her attending doctor knew that this was a symptom of arsenic poisoning and could explain Carol's symptoms. According to the World Health Organization, symptoms include abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, numbness, and tingling of extremities, muscle cramping, and death. Further tests of her hair showed alarming levels of arsenic. By examining the amount of arsenic in the hair closest to her scalp, it was discovered that the dosage of arsenic given to Carol had increased over time. The levels at her roots were the highest. Carol was being poisoned. The same day that doctors were discovering that Carol was slowly being killed, her mother Marie was arrested for writing bad checks, which police had been tracking for some time. Her lifestyle and failure to pay her bills was catching up with her. After discovering what Carol was suffering from, and upon doing a little examination of the situation, the sister of the late Frank Hilly, Frida, insisted that the death of her brother be looked into again. Frida had discovered a vial in her home that belonged to Marie at a time when Marie had lived there. She had the vial sent to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences, and it came back positive for traces of arsenic. Frida also found the possible source, a bottle of Cowley's rat and mouse poison. Frank's body was exhumed on October 3, 1979, and found to have high levels of arsenic, something that hadn't been tested during his original autopsy. Marie Hilly, over the course of several months, had been poisoning her husband through his food. Dr. Joseph Embry of the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences had the cause of death changed from hepatitis to acute arsenic poisoning. Turns out that hepatitis and arsenic poisoning have very similar symptoms. 
On October 6, 1979, while still jailed for the bad checks, Marie Hilly was arrested and charged for the attempted murder of Carol. In her purse that had been seized, investigators found a vial that was tested and came back positive for arsenic. It was also suspected that when Marie's son Mike was living at home that she had been slowly poisoning him as well. At the time, it had been attributed to a stomach flu, and once he moved away for college, his symptoms began to disappear. He and his wife later had briefly moved in with his sister and mother after his father's death, and his wife had suffered a miscarriage. Now, it's been speculated that Marie may have been poisoning her. The couple had moved out shortly after. And word around town was that Marie had also been trying to poison the police officers who responded to her many calls of various levels of harassment, that she was feeding them baked goods, etc., laced with arsenic. Several officers had reported feeling sick after visiting Marie. Additionally, she may have also poisoned her mother and mother-in-law, who had died with moderate levels of arsenic in their bodies, investigators later found out. On November 9, 1979, 46-year-old Marie Hilly was indicted on the attempted murder charges of trying to kill her daughter and released on bond. Within days, she checked into a motel under the name Emily Stevens and requested a meeting with her attorney. When he arrived at the hotel to meet her, some of her things were still in the room, but she wasn't. There was, however, a note indicating she'd been kidnapped. Police weren't buying it and suspected that Marie was on the run. While missing, she was indicted on January 11, 1980, for the murder of Frank Hilly, and the FBI searched the country for her, but couldn't find Marie, and no leads showed up on where she was. Marie Hilly had left town, stolen her aunt and uncle's car, and fled to Fort Lauderdale. She assumed the name of Robbie Hannon and shaved 12 years off her age. While in Florida, she met a man named John Homan, and they began a relationship and moved to New Hampshire in September 1980. They were married in May of 1981, and Marie began using the name Robbie Homan. She found work as a secretary at Keen Screw Company. In August of 1982, she told her husband that she had a rare blood disease and needed to go to Texas to see a specialist and that she wanted to visit her identical twin sister, Terry Martin. She insisted on traveling alone, and weeks later, her twin, Terry, called John and told him that Robbie had passed away, but pleaded with him not to come to Texas. Her body was donated to medical science. Mid-November of that year, while John Homan was grieving the loss of his wife, a woman that looked an awful lot like Marie, a.k.a. Robbie, arrived at his doorstep with blonde hair, a contrast to Robbie's brown hair, and she introduced herself as Robbie's twin sister, Terry. John was smitten with this woman that looked exactly like his dead wife, and the two began dating. Soon, Terry had moved in. Wanting to know everything about her late sister, Terry visited the screw manufacturing company where Robbie had worked, asking to meet the people that worked there and even to see the desk where Robbie had sat. Together, she and John wrote an obituary for Robbie, which was placed in the local paper. 
the Sentinel. So imagine this. You're working for a company and you get to know your coworker. One day, that coworker leaves town to seek medical treatment and sadly passes away. Weeks later, that dead coworker shows up at work with dyed hair and asks you to tell them stories about their quote unquote twin and wants to sit in her sister's chair. It's absolutely mind blowing. And I went down quite a few rabbit holes regarding this twin situation. My first question was did people actually buy this? It seems that no, they did not. I guess nobody directly confronted this Terry slash Robbie slash Marie person. And by all accounts, John Homan wasn't questioning anything and Terry wasn't going anywhere. She got a job at a book press in nearby Brattleboro, Vermont, a town that borders New Hampshire, and was working as a secretary while continuing to live with John Homan. So now that Robbie's twin, Terry, was visiting Robbie's work and hanging around the area, the townspeople were stunned and people were certainly talking. Robbie's former employer at the screw manufacturing company, Ron Oya, was suspicious and looked into the obituary that John and Terry had published for Robbie. He decided to check some of the details, including the facility in Texas that her body had been donated to. Turned out, that place didn't exist, and neither did the facility where she had been treated, so Oya went to the police and asked them to look into it. In January 1983, after reviewing the obituary and the details surrounding Robbie's death and Terry's arrival to town, Detective Barry Hunter of the New Hampshire State Police and Special Agent David Steele of the FBI thought that this Terry person may actually be a fugitive named Terry Lynn Clifton. They approached Terry Martin at her workplace in Brattleboro on January 12th. Upon being confronted, she asked to speak with them privately, so they went down to the station where she admitted to police that she was actually Marie Hilly and was wanted in Alabama for check fraud. They didn't know who Marie Hilly was, and upon further digging found out she was a fugitive wanted for the murder of her husband and attempted murder of her daughter. She was brought back to Anniston, Alabama, and indicted on charges of murder and attempted murder, which she pled not guilty. While researching this case, I just couldn't get past the fake twin. Did John Homan really buy that his wife Robbie had died and this woman that looked exactly like her came into his life that her twin sister fell in love with him too? Or was he in on this for some reason? Or did he just want to believe it? Martin Frank, a journalist for The Sentinel, met John Homan in 1983 and had no doubt by his reaction to Marie Hilly's arrest that he was completely duped by this woman. Other people that had spoken to John Homan over the years weren't so sure, and I'm not sure we'll ever know the answer, and John passed away in 1989. In 1983, after her trial in which her daughter Carol gave witness testimony, Marie was convicted of murdering her husband and attempting to poison her daughter. She was sentenced to life plus 20 years at Tutwiler State Women's Prison, a maximum security facility in Wetumpka. While imprisoned, Marie was considered a model prisoner and reclassified to minimum security. She was given four different passes where she was permitted by Warden Jean Hare 
to leave the prison for eight hours at a time. On Thursday, February 19, 1987, Hilly was released on a weekend furlough, given a three-day pass to go home, and she took that time to visit with John Homan, who was still by her side and had moved to Alabama to be near her. On Sunday, she left John a note saying she was fleeing and that it was best for everyone. John called the sheriff and said that Marie would not be returning to prison. According to her note, she was escaping to Canada. Knowing Marie Hilly, police realized that she must have planned another great escape. I don't see how someone who had fled the state of Alabama and lived as a fugitive for three years was permitted one hour outside of the prison wall, let alone three days. You know, that whole flight risk and all. And upon hearing about the furlough and subsequent escape, Joe Hubbard, the assistant district attorney who had prosecuted Marie Hilly, said, quote, I think this is not just insane, it's gross negligence. Judge Sam Monk, who presided at the trial, said, quote, The conduct of prison officials cannot, in my opinion, be defended. Once again, law enforcement were looking for Marie Hilly. Two days after John Homan made the call that she was on the run, a resident living near Blue Mountain, Alabama, Sue Craft, looked out her kitchen window one afternoon and saw a woman sprawled out on her patio. It was cold, windy, and rainy, and Kraft grabbed a neighbor and the two approached the woman who was barely conscious, covered in mud, hair matted, and soaking wet. The area had experienced cold temperatures and heavy rain the past few days. The woman was barely able to speak, telling Kraft and the neighbor that her car had broken down. Kraft covered her with a tarp and called the police at 1.30 p.m. to report that a strange woman was lying in her yard and needed medical assistance. Police and ambulance arrived at the residence, and the woman told them her name was Marie Hilly. She was transported to the hospital, but her body temperature had dropped significantly, down to 81 degrees, and she was going into cardiac arrest. She passed away later that day, at the age of 54, of hypothermia. Police believed that after her stay with John Homan, she had wandered into the woods and followed a railroad, but hadn't thought out or planned her escape, the cold and rain being too much that she eventually succumbed to the elements. District Attorney Bob Field said, quote, It's unbelievable. This goes against everything she's done in the past. The biggest escape artist in this area in 10 years, and what does she do? She ended up crawling around in the woods. Now, obviously, this isn't and never was a whodunit. With unsolved murders or disappearances, there's that need to get justice for the victims and the victims' families. There's that urgency to get the bad guy off the street. But when it comes to people like Marie Hilly, murderers known as black widows or quiet killers, it leaves different questions out there, and it goes beyond why. I mean, this is a game killer, plain and simple, somebody who kills for money. But mix that in with someone who commits filicide, the deliberate act of killing your child. I mean, fortunately, Carol Hilly was hospitalized and her life saved before her mother could succeed in taking her life. But if she had murdered Carol and received that twenty-five dollars or $30,000 payout, then what? She gets a new car, another new wardrobe, maybe some lovely new drapes for her sitting room. 
Really, though, the only thing I can wrap my mind around is that you're so completely devoid of emotion, of love, or empathy to commit filicide for gain. To not only make your child sick, but watch them suffer and be okay with their death to get some cash. Not that any reason for filicide is justifiable, but in Marie Hilly's case, psychiatrists believe that the birth of her daughter Carol may have triggered a form of mental illness, that Marie was displaying traits of resentment toward her infant daughter, that her personality began to change immediately after giving birth. I suppose if you mix that in with a woman that saw the value of a person through how much they owned, it produces sad and deadly results. Additionally, Marie Hilly showed signs of a psychopath, the lack of empathy and remorse, the constant lying. A 2019 article in Psychology Today stated that female murderers often target someone close to them, a lover or a husband, and that the main reason is financial or material gain, with another motive being revenge. Betty Broderick was the first person who came to my mind with revenge, the quote-unquote woman scorned that murdered her ex-husband and his second wife. Female serial killers make up less than 15% of serial killers, and their preferred method is something neat and tidy like poisoning. Generally, a female serial killer will target someone within their own home, whereas a male will go seek their victim outside of their own four walls. Marissa Harrison, an evolutionary psychologist at Penn State Harrisburg, said that what motivates female killers is, quote, definitely money. In a study that Harrison conducted in 2019, she and her colleagues determined that 75% of killings by men are sexually motivated, while 52% of killings by women are financially motivated, with the method being either poisoning or asphyxiation. While her mother was incarcerated, Carol Hilly would make frequent trips to the prison for visits, often calling her mother, but she never asked why she did what she did. She probably knew she would never get an honest answer. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.